WORT Summer Festival is coming. Join us at Warner Park on Sunday, May 21st from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. We'll have a wide variety of live music. We'll also have food and craft vendors, an arts activity area, and plenty of space in beautiful Warner Park. Find out more information at wortfm.org. See you there. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin's Budget Writing Committee unanimously passed a Republican proposal to give state-employed attorneys a significant pay increase. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that under the plan, assistant district attorneys and public defenders will receive a starting wage of $36 an hour, a pay bump of about $9 from the current pay rate. At a meeting of the state's Joint Finance Committee today, advocates noted major pay disparities between private and public attorneys. In Wisconsin, public defenders make over $40,000 less per year than attorneys in the private sector. This pay disparity has caused severe staffing shortages across the state, leading to higher workloads and longer delays in criminal cases where an accused person needs to be assigned a public defender. The pay bump is $1 an hour more than what was proposed by Governor Tony Evers earlier this year. The Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled that a state constitutional amendment that expands crime victims' rights was legally ratified by voters in 2020. The Wisconsin Justice Initiative challenged this amendment, known as Marcy's Law, arguing the way that it was described on ballots didn't warn voters that the amendment would diminish defendants' rights, reports the Associated Press. Today's 6-1 decision was written by Justice Brian Hagedorn, who noted the amendment process doesn't require ballots descriptions to explain every consequence or element. He wrote, quote, a description of the amendment isn't necessary at all to pass legal muster, unquote. Justice Dan Walsh Bradley was the lone dissenter on the decision. A massive farm business in northeastern Wisconsin has reached a settlement with the State Department of Natural Resources over a lawsuit it filed over groundwater pollution regulations. Kennard Farms in Kewanee County will not be able to spread liquid manure over its fields over the next four years and will have to install manure treatment technology on one of their properties, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. Kennard Farms is just one of many CAFO operations in Kewanee County and contains around 8,000 cows. The settlement comes after neighboring communities to the farm have raised concerns over pollution in their drinking water, largely stemming from manure runoff. Kennard was required to pay $215,000 in another settlement in a case over allegations of pollution for manure-spreading practices. Dane County kicked off a new season of its Suck the Muck initiative at Babcock County Park today. This year, the county will focus on two areas of the Yahara chain of lakes, Lake Wabisa to Lower Mud Lake and Lake Kagansa. To date, around 33,000 cubic yards of the muck has been removed from those areas and mostly consists of phosphorus and sediment. The goal of the project is to reduce flooding risk throughout Dane County. In 2018, flooding caused over $100 million in damages throughout the county and resulted in one death. To make sure this work gets done, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi is also looking to add two more full-time dredging positions to the project. Madison has been home to a professional men's soccer team for years and starting in 2025 could have a pro women's team as well. Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway joined Forward Madison FC leaders today to announce that the soccer club has secured the rights to a USL Super League team. 
Before that can happen, however, renovations must be made to Bree Stevens Field to be in compliance with the new league's requirements. Those improvements include women's locker rooms and upgrades to other infrastructure, as well as new field turf. The USL Super League will have its inaugural First Division season starting in August 2024. Madison's team, temporarily known as Madison Women's Pro Soccer, could enter the league by the start of the 2025-26 season at the earliest. The Madison School Board has settled on a timeline for hiring a new leader for the district. The Capital Times reports that a new superintendent of Madison Schools won't be named until March 2024. Current Superintendent Carlton Jenkins announced he was leaving the district earlier this year and is staying on until July. Lisa Kivistad, a longtime and now retired district administrator, will serve as interim superintendent until the summer of 2024 when a new superintendent is supposed to start. The Madison School Board decided against a more accelerated timeline in its superintendent search. It says this process will allow for more public input and hopefully a larger applicant pool. The Henry Vila Zoo has a few new faces in its primate building as Marombe, the black and white rough ruffed lemur, gave birth to three baby lemurs last month. All three infant lemurs weighed less than 100 grams at birth or about the weight of a medium-sized tomato. This critically endangered lemur species is native only to Madagascar, where they face a growing pet trade and high demand for agriculture that's demolishing their habitats. The three baby lemurs made their public debut at the zoo last Friday after zoo staff worked to baby-proof their enclosure. And now on to today's top stories. While air pollution has been linked to a long series of negative health outcomes, air quality levels are largely unstudied in the Madison area. Tonight, city leaders are set to decide on how air quality within the city can be tracked. On its agenda, whether to create a vast network of air quality sensors. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has more. The Common Council is set to vote this evening to accept a grant from the National Environmental Protections Agency to install a network of air quality monitors around Madison. Those monitors will be specifically targeting communities of color who are often the most affected by air pollution. The half-a-million-dollar grant would also go towards public outreach to inform the community how to protect themselves from air pollution and to develop steps to improve air quality in Madison. The city has already received the grant from the EPA. Tonight's vote would amend the budget to officially accept the funding and kickstart the initiative. The Air Quality Monitoring Initiative would be a joint venture between both the city and county governments, UW-Madison, the Foundation for Black Women's Wellness, the Latino Health Council, and the Mung Institute. The initiative would install 68 air quality sensors throughout all of Madison, mounted on traffic lights and other city-owned infrastructure. Each sensor would cost around $1,800 apiece. Jessica Price is the Sustainability and Resilience Manager for the City of Madison. She says that the initiative has two main components. So what this will allow us to do is really understand air quality and particulate matter concentrations at the neighborhood scale. And the other part of this project involves, you know, community outreach and education. And so it's really important for folks to understand uh, and think about air quality. It's not necessarily something that's at top of mind. It can go, it's sort of an invisible thing for most of us every day. Once installed, these sensors would provide real-time data on current air quality conditions that would be available to the public through an upcoming web page. 
Price says that determining exactly where to place the air quality sensors will be decided after a series of listening sessions with the community, led by the three community organizations. At those yet-to-be-scheduled meetings, folks will be able to talk about where they spend the majority of their time outdoors and what areas of their neighborhood they are most concerned about air quality. Air quality is largely determined by the amount of pollutants in the air, called particulate matter. Particulate matter is essentially tiny particles in the air that come from fires and burning fossil fuels. Here in Madison, Price says that the majority of our air pollution comes from cars and other vehicles. Dr. Patricia Telez Giron is the co-chair of the Latino Health Council here in Madison. She says that poor air quality and high levels of particulate matter have been linked to a litany of negative health outcomes, including cancer, heart problems, damage to the nervous system, and of course, respiratory problems. If we talk about respiratory disease, patients that have asthma, the air quality is going to directly influence their uh, health. So it's going to have more exacerbations of their symptoms, uh, more problems with shortness of breath, also more viral infections, more bacterial infections regarding what the quality of the air is. There could be other problems with other health issues regarding, you know, the quality of the air, what kind of things are in the air. According to the State Department of Natural Resources, while there has been a decrease in air pollution across Wisconsin over the past two decades, some areas, like in southeastern Wisconsin, are not meeting national air quality standards set by the EPA. The DNR does currently operate two air quality sensors in Madison, one on the east side and one downtown. Price says that while we do usually meet air quality standards, there is still cause for concern. When you take a deeper dive into that data and start looking at what's going on sort of on an annual basis and a monthly basis and a daily basis, you can kind of see how those different criteria pollutants and their their levels in our air fluctuate um, day to day, month to month, and over time. And so the sensors that we have in Madison show that sometimes Madison has among the highest levels of particulate matter in our air across the state. And so while we're meeting these national air quality standards and we're not in an air quality emergency, it's really something that's important for us to keep an eye on and understand how it's affecting our community and what we might do to make sure that we can keep our air clean. While the project would monitor air quality throughout all of Madison, the city would focus on minority and underserved communities across the city. According to a 2022 report from Clean Wisconsin, people of color are across the board exposed to more air pollution than white people, both nationally and here in Wisconsin. Dr. Telez Garon says that this is because black and Hispanic families are often unable to move away from areas with poor air quality. We know that a lot of the things that are affecting our patients are outside the clinic, right? That the social conditionings of health are extremely important. So if you live in areas of the city where this is not monitored appropriately, is not treated appropriately, so let's say you live in a site where there are factories that are just having, you know, smoke all over or the quality of the uh, vehicles that are driven in that area, or many, many other things, obviously you are going to be at a higher risk. The Common Council will meet at 6.30 tonight to discuss accepting the grant. If accepted, community outreach would begin immediately, and an open house to discuss the initiative would be held this fall.
Sensors are expected to be installed starting next summer. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Ruggiehout. Mund students from across the state gathered today to meet state lawmakers and learn how to get involved in all levels of government. It was a part of Monday at the state capitol, organized by the Mun Institute here in Madison to foster youth in the community to become active citizens. To learn more about their efforts today, WRT producer Nate Wuggiehout spoke with Penn Hur, CEO of the Mun Institute. I'm here inside the state capitol with Peng Her, CEO of the Hmong Institute, to talk about Hmong Day here in the state capitol. Uh, Peng, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, and thanks for having me here today. So just to begin, uh, Peng, what is Hmong Day? Yeah, so Hmong Day at the capitol is an event where we invite students from throughout the state of Wisconsin who are Hmong to come to the capitol so that they understand a little bit more about what civic engagement is, as well as hopefully inspire them to see themselves one day working here. You know, it, we, we chose May 16th because on May 14th, the governor in 2021 signed Act 31, which um, designated that day as Hmong Lao Veterans Day. Day. And so it commemorates the Hmong having to flee our homeland and come to the United States, making a, home, a new home here. And so we want to tie it in with that weekend. Um, and at the same time, give an opportunity for students to come here and see um, and meet some of their elected officials, as well as get an opportunity to walk in, in inside this beautiful building. And now this year's Hmong Day is titled uh, Resilient Hmong Youth. Uh, what, can you, what can you tell me about that? Yeah, so, you know, the medium age for the Hmong community here in Wisconsin is 21. So it's a very young community. And so we also recognize that our youth has been resilient both during COVID as well as just coming here to the United States as refugees. And so many of them, for them, it's their first time coming to the capital. But at the same time, be resilient in being who they are, knowing who they are as a Hmong person as well as a student. So these are resilient students, and we wanted to um, honor and commemorate that also. And then why is this day in, important and why is getting uh, the Hmong youth engaged in the civic process important? Yeah, today's really important because as I mentioned, uh, May 14th is a day we honor and remember as having to leave our country in Laos. And so we want to make sure our students are aware of that history, but at the same time recognize that they are now here in Wisconsin. This is their new home and they should be good, active citizens participating in our civic duty as well as participating in our elected process. And so we are inside the state capitol right now, and as we speak, the uh, state's budget writing committee is helping to to craft the 2023 budget for the next two years here. Uh, what would you like uh, those budget writers to know about the, the needs of the Hmong community right now? Yeah, so thank you for that question. You know, as the budget comes, um, has started and the discussion, things that they should think about is, you know, for the Hmong community, there's a lot of need in mental health. Because of becoming here as a refugee, a lot of our uh, elders and family members suffer from PTSD from the war. So mental health is a big issue for our community. Secondly, education, making sure that our kids have the best opportunity to succeed in schools and making sure the schools are funded. And lastly, making sure that we have child care. You know, if we want this community to start working and have a strong, vibrant uh, economy, we need child care so people go back to work. And so those are three things that I think are really important in our community, not just in the Hmong community, but overall. And then shifting to maybe a, a, a local level a little bit, later tonight the Madison Common Council is going to be voting on uh, accepting a grant to install air quality sensors throughout uh, the city of Madison, and the Hmong Institute is in, involved in that. What can you sort of tell me about that? 
Yeah, you know, studies have shown that uh, often folks who are low income live in um, neighborhoods with more pollution, as well as live in older homes and older apartments, which t typically have more pollutants in them. And so we want to make that aware as well as finding ways to make sure that uh, we could clean, have clean air and clean water and protecting our environment. And so we're happy to partner with the city for that, as well as making sure that our community is educated about pollution and making sure that we have clean air. And, and it's about sustainability and making sure that we save the future for our children. And now back to Mung Day happening here today. Uh, about how many people uh, are, uh, are registered to participate in this year's Mung Day? Yeah, so we have a little over 80 students from throughout the state and a lot of them from the Milwaukee area. Um, and I was, as I was talking to the, some of the students and I asked them, how many for you, it's your first time in the state capitol? And I would say about 80% of them raised their hand. So that really is a testimony about um, the importance of today and having them come and seeing, so, seeing them here at the state capitol. But also at the same time, we've got a lot of partners here in um, the state, um, whether it's elected officials like Rep Representative Hong, who was our keynote speaker, and then um, other elected officials who partnered with us to be able to get the space. But lastly, we also wanted to honor um, Senator Jerry Petrowski and the work he's done. He's been a longtime public servant, a long time in the public office, and really supporting the Hmong community throughout his uh, tenure here. And so we also wanted to recognize and commemorate his work because last year he, re he uh, retired and did not run for re-election. And so this is a way to honor the work he's done for the Hmong community also. And then you just got done speaking in the assembly chamber to those students there. Uh, what did you and what did the other speakers have to say to those students? Yeah, you know, um, Representative Francesca Hong really talked about uh, the need to have diversity the need to have more ideas and new faces here at the state capitol. And so that's a theme that we want to carry throughout today, too. But we want to make sure these children and these youth envision themselves here as an elected official. Um, we also want to make sure that laws that are passed also represent the complexity of the community that we live in. And so uh, representation matters. And so we wanted to inspire folks to one day run for office and get elected. You mentioned a little bit before, today is May 16th and uh, uh, May 14th. It's a very important day for, uh, for you and for the Hmong community. Uh, could you just talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, back in 1975, Vietnam fell into communist control in April. And, and then in May, um, Laos fell into communist control. And so starting in, on May 12th, the evacuation of Long Chang. So if you remember a couple of years ago, you saw on the news, Afghan, where people are rushing the tarmac to get on these huge cargo planes. That was us back in 1975. And so the last day in which the Hmong evacuated Longchang was May 14th. And that was when many of them were fortunate enough to get on that plane to fly over into Thailand. But for the vast majority, they then had to trek through the jungles. Um, being chased by the communist soldiers, coming to the border, which is the Mekong River. And for many that lived in the mountains, did not know how to swim. So that was a huge barrier for many. Many drowned trying to cross the Mekong River into Thailand to seek political uh, asylum. And so we honor those that passed away, but at the same time, look toward the future for these children and their future also. And then what would you like the, the broader Madison community and the people listening to this right now to know about uh, the Hmong Institute and the Hmong community here in Madison? Yeah, so the mission of the Hmong Institute is empowering communities 
through education, health, and preservation of the Hmong heritage. I just want to encourage folks, May is AAPI month. So to get out to support your um, local Asian American businesses, as well as get to know your community, your Asian American community. They could be your dentist, they could be your doctor, they could be your school, uh, your child's teacher at school. And so get to know them and get to know where they're from. Many of them, similar like myself, came here as a refugee early on and had to learn English for the first time and then um, struggled to um, go to school and now are, are thriving. And so we want to make sure that, and, and I want to encourage everyone to get out and meet their Hmong community. And and back to the Hmong Institute, uh, do you guys have any anything coming up here that you want people to know about? Yeah, so this Saturday is our Hmong Heritage Dinner. It's our annual fundraiser. Um, and so it's a way in which we raise funds to support the work we do, both our educational program as well as our mental health program. And so for those of you who did not hear about it, you're more than welcome to come join us. And for those of you who have are not able to join us, you always go online and make a donation to our, our nonprofit as well. And do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us about what's been happening here today? No, it's a great day. You know, the children and the students here have really enjoyed coming here and seeing this wonderful building. You know, the, many of us, we call this the People's Building. And so for them, being their first time being here is amazing. But the most amazing is to see the, the, the look in their eyes and to see them thinking, hey, I too one day could be working here. And that's inspiring. I've been talking with Peng Her, CEO of the Hmong Institute here in Madison about Hmong Day here at the state capitol. Peng, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. Earlier this month, WORT won five awards from the Wisconsin Broadcasters Association's Awards for Excellence, competing with some of the largest radio news outlets across the state. One of those winners was the feature producer Sean Bull's Parks and Landmarks, taking home first place for best news writing for his episode about a small museum in western Wisconsin. The Rock in the House, often confused with another landmark sharing a similar name, is dedicated to the fall of a 55-ton chunk of rock that fell into a home in 1995. We are rebroadcasting that award-winning segment tonight. A quick note, this first aired in June of last year. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underappreciated outdoors. This isn't exactly a Memorial Day episode, but I'd like to take my time today to eulogize one of my favorite weird little roadside attractions, Wisconsin's own Rock in the House. As I did the last time I wrote about this place, I should make it immediately clear, we are not talking about the house on the rock today. Most Wisconsinites are familiar on some level with the crazy house in the hills above Spring Green, Alex Jordan's mid-century middle finger to Frank Lloyd Wright. Again, that is emphatically not the house we're talking about today. The house on the rock is a mansion built on top of a rock. The rock in the house is just a normal house that a boulder happened to fall into. Though the two attractions' names bear a surface similarity, they could not be more different in purpose. The House on the Rock is a four-hour-long march through an immense collection of everything and nothing. It technically qualifies as a museum, though it seems to be curated by the same guy who writes the dreams I have after stuffing myself with too much Chinese takeout. Its only theme, so far as I can figure out, is the excesses of the 19th and 20th century American empire. On the other hand, the Rock in the House is the complete opposite. It's a tiny museum, maybe an acre if you count the yard outside. But the little space is laser-focused on examining a single moment in time. Specifically, April 24th, 1995, 
11.38 a.m. On that morning, Maxine Anderson stood in her kitchen in Fountain City, Wisconsin. Fountain City is a community on the state's very west edge, carved in the meager space between tall wooded bluffs and the mighty blue Mississippi. Though the world has changed vastly in the last century, the Mississippi River will always be a commercial artery. Despite everything, the town's population has remained about the same for as long as we've had census data. This constancy is reflected in the city's architecture. Other than a small quick trip and the occasional bed and breakfast, it's clear that not a lot new has been built here in a while. There's a lot of wood siding, brick, and just older styles of home construction in general. The Andersons' home is particularly interesting because it appears to be an amalgamation, built out and added to over time. The house is at 440 North Shore Drive, the very north end of town. Here, the bluffs loom especially close, mere yards from the river. This leaves just enough room for a row of single-family homes, two lanes of State Highway 35, two sets of train tracks, and an Army Corps of Engineers base. You can mostly only see the west face of the house from the road, so consequently, that's the side of the house that looks the best. It's a combination of concrete and red brick standing tall above a narrow sidewalk. The yard slopes such that it's actually the basement that steps out to this walk. More brick and concrete frame the stairs that lead up to the actual front entrance. A pair of small stone lions flank the door to the sunroom on the north side of the building. This entrance, too, is locked, but you can see some of the Anderson's furniture stored inside. Continuing along a brick path under the shade of a maple canopy, you come to the actual entrance, a white metal storm door which leads you right from a covered concrete patio into the kitchen. It was this kitchen with its white and blue cupboards and butcher block counters in which Maxine Anderson stood 27 Aprils ago. It was 11.38 a.m. Perhaps she was thinking about preparing an early lunch. Then, without warning, a 55-ton chunk of rock freed itself from the bluff above. Rolling, it ripped through the trees and came to a crashing halt in the master bedroom, not ten feet from where Maxine stood. It was a near miss, but Maxine and Dwight were unharmed. The house, of course, was not so lucky. Big chunks of the kitchen ceiling now hung down, and there were smaller cracks in the wallboard throughout the house. But the damage was concentrated at the point of impact. The bedroom was flattened. Thin wood walls and a tin roof gave no resistance, and now a meteor stood in their place. Though, despite being a rough disk in shape, the rock didn't roll any further. Miraculously, the rest of the house was still pretty livable. Of course, technically livable is not the same standard as actually feeling like a home. I don't know whether the Andersons were particularly religious, but I imagine it would be easy to take this event as a pretty clear sign that it was time to move. The only issue was, who would buy a house that seems just a bit... cursed? We don't have time to get into it, but this wasn't even the first time this happened. A rock fell on the same house in April of 1907, and it actually killed someone the first time. Perhaps the outcome we got was the best one possible. A local real estate investor bought the house and preserved it, more or less exactly as it was the day the rock fell. For just $2, anyone could take a self-guided tour, see the rock, and try to imagine themselves in the Anderson's shoes. So it was, for a quarter of a century, 
a simple little museum in an idyllic corner of Wisconsin. This Memorial Day, my wife and I happened to be driving through the area, and we stopped. Something had changed. The door was locked, and taped to the glass was a new handwritten note. Someone took away your privilege of seeing the rock and info about it by taking the money box and destroying the property. Signed, Owner. So that's it, I guess. After all these years, the rock in the house is dead. Since no one more qualified has stepped up, let's do an autopsy, shall we? The money box the note refers to was a rusty metal toolbox strapped to the house's low wrought iron fence. They asked each visitor to donate $2 and secured the cash with a couple $5 padlocks. By this, I mean they asked in more handwritten notes. Everything about the rock in the house was run on the honor system. There were no employees present, or no cameras even. Even with the nicest guests in the world, I would be really surprised if this was the first time the money box was stolen. Even if it was, even if 100% of the donations were going straight to the owners, I can't imagine that covered the cost of this place. In addition to property taxes, they were for some reason paying to keep the water and electricity running. That means they were probably paying for heat as well, if for no other reason than to keep the pipes from bursting in the winter. They were paying for a whole house full of expenses. And for what? So we could gawk with all the proper context? I can see how that would get old after a couple decades. Throw a little vandalism into the mix, and I can totally see how we got here. Luckily, if you haven't seen The Rock yet, there's some good news. The owners still allow visitors, but you can only explore around the outside. Thankfully, this includes walking right up to The Rock. Additionally, the house is registered as a historic site, so even if they wanted to sell, I doubt the next owner could change much without going through a couple of committees first. It's a little sad that visitors can't get the full museum experience anymore. But the rock in the house is still absolutely worth seeing if you're in the area. Although, if you're visiting in April, keep an ear to the ground. You never know when the impossible might happen again. For WORT News, I'm Sean Bull. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg presents a tale of two warblers. As birds continue their migratory path through Wisconsin, both the golden-winged warbler and the blue-winged warbler will be seen more and more in southern Wisconsin. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about the golden-winged warbler and the blue-winged warbler. And it's a species that I absolutely adore, and I say species because technically they are two species, but did you know that they can hybridize? They're one of the few warbler species that can actually interbreed with each other, and you can get different hybrid patterns and variations that look very drastically different from each other. They are probably some of the coolest warblers, and we've had the pleasure at the Wildlife Center here of getting both of the species admitted here in the last week. It's right at the peak of our migration, which has been a little bit late this year, uh, but my migratory 
migratory species such as warblers have been flying all the way through Wisconsin and we've been seeing and hearing so many of them. And that means that, of course, more of them are getting injured or being found sick or in a bad shape after their migration, which is very, very long. So the cool thing about these two species in particular, besides the fact that they can hybridize, is that they definitely compete with each other and have very kind of different habitats sometimes, or they have different population, you know, change effects. They have different ways of utilizing their environment. They also have different sounds, but they're very buzzy little birds. The really interesting part about the golden wing warbler is that they're actually considered a species of special concern here in Wisconsin. So they don't have as many as they used to in our state. We actually have a really great map that's part of the Wisconsin uh, bird conservation plan that you can look up to see where we have confirmed cases of like blue wing warbler and golden wing warbler throughout the state. But the golden warbler, golden wing warbler, we had one that came in uh, that hit a window. So, you know, probably the most common reason that we see warbler at the Wildlife Center in rehabilitation is because of a window strike. Um, As they're migrating through, they will occasionally see the reflection on a window and the reflection is of a tree that's nearby or a shrub. And if you've got a really nice warbler habitat or you live on a wood edge, and they're especially associated with early successional habitats, according to the Wisconsin DNR uh, species guidance and overview information, if you have that type of area that you live adjacent to or on your property, you may have them around more often. And especially if you have great setups with lots of food and maybe running water and ponds and things, that's where you might see them more often. So this particular site had a whole lot of warbler activity. And while that's amazing, especially if you have that in your backyard, there's still a risk of them hitting a window then by seeing a reflection of those vegetation or other items. And that causes them a lot of times to get some sort of physical trauma, like, you know, soft tissue damage, bruising, fractures of the shoulder girdle. And we see it all the time in rehabilitation centers all throughout the year, um, but especially in the spring and fall migration. So this little golden wing warbler that we had admitted was very lucky, only had a little bit of damage, some bruising, some lethargy, had a little bit of trouble flying initially, but recovered very quickly and we were able to band it and get it out and released again, which was amazing. So considering their species of special concern, it was great to really get that one bird out so that it could continue on its way, doing its thing, going through its migration and, you know, making sure that they're able to build their nests and be able to get through that, you know, period, which is uh, for them usually mid-May to the end of July when they're breeding. So that was, uh, you know, a really neat species to be able to see. We have the blue wing warbler, again, the other one that they can hybridize with, which is not necessarily considered a species of special concern in the state, but they do actually kind of compete with the golden wing warblers. So although they hybridize and they can, you know, they, they do have similar, you know, I would say status as being like a really cool bird. They just actually, you know, they technically do cause a bit of a decline in our golden wing warblers. So although they're both really cool, golden wing warblers are the ones that are considered to be lower in their populations. And since the 1960s, they've actually decreased by about 22% in our area, the Great Lakes region. And if we're talking in the northern areas, 43%, uh, that would be in the Appalachian Mountains. So really, really sad. But golden wing, cool, blue wing warblers still really 
really cool. They are also those that occupy uh, areas where there's a lot of dense vegetation. They also don't mind the the open early secession habitat, but it's actually more mid-secessional habitats, uh, according to some research. But they like areas where there's regenerating forest and edge habitats, and they like to have more grass cover, more ground forb cover, less woody cover than some of the areas where golden wing warblers go. Golden wing warblers actually, when they fledge, and this is from some radio tracking studies, according to the uh, Cornell website, they move immediately into mature forests as soon as they fledge the nest. So kind of neat, a little bit different. The blue wing warblers are definitely more in the western part of the state. So pretty much everywhere from like La Crosse County down towards like north of the Platteville area and then into the um, central part of Wisconsin. So they have, you know, breeding activity in a lot of different places. Um, They've got a pretty widespread and stable population here in Wisconsin. And they, um, although are considered less of a special concern than the golden wing warbler, we still um, happen to see more of them admit at least to our wildlife center than we do the golden wing warbler. Now, this blue wing warbler that we had had also this week was another window strike patient, but this one had spinal trauma. And unfortunately, spinal trauma sometimes doesn't always recover as much as you want to hope and try that, you know, that it will with time and pain meds and recovery. But after a couple of days, there was not really much of a change in our blue wing warbler friend to be able to stand or use their legs very well. So we had to make the the very sad but humane, you know, decision to euthanize that blue wing warbler. It was a very sad thing for me, especially because I just love them so much. But we were happy to have one really good case with our golden wing warbler, one kind of sad case with our blue wing warbler. But know that we tried with both of these species, which are important uh, species to be able to document and to be able to note as they are coming through the state and since their populations are generally pretty low. So Blue Wing Warbler, Golden Wing Warbler, I would highly recommend checking out their life history um, on the the Cornell Ornithology websites that have their their habitats, their food, their nesting behaviors, their uh, songs. It's really fun to hear their songs because, again, they do a lot of buzzing. But also check out some pictures of some of the hybridization patterns that they've got. Obviously, Golden Wing Warblers have gold wings. Blue Wing Warblers don't have gold wings, but they're also not really that blue. It's really interesting. But take a peek if you get the chance. I think they're really fascinating birds and pretty rare if you get to see them, let alone get to work with them in rehabilitation. So as always, if you're worried about any birds uh, hitting windows, please follow some guidance that we have on our website at www.giveshelter.org. Check out ways to prevent window strikes, especially for our migratory species like these warblers. This has been a segment about golden wing and blue wing warblers and a couple of the recent cases we had at the Wildlife Center at Dane County Humane Society. And hopefully you learned a little bit about them and definitely great to do some of your own research and check out some of the state status species guidance and action plans we have on the DNR websites. Uh, If you find any sick, injured, or orphaned wild animal, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And otherwise, this has been Wildlife Weekly. On June 11th, Madison Metro will introduce a radically changed bus system. With a new route structure, Metro promises more frequent buses, fewer transfers, and speedier trips. But that's a lot of change, and there's bound to be some confusion during the transition. On yesterday's 8 o'clock buzz, host Brian Standing spoke with Harold Cleams, a Madison resident who noticed a lack of information about the changes at soon-to-be-shuttered bus stops and decided to do something about the changes. So what inspired you to sort of 
take this on yourself and to to supplement the signage that uh, Madison Metro is putting up on the bus stops? Yeah, so this basically came out of something where maybe two weeks ago, a friend of mine mentioned that he had seen some of the bus stop closure signs that Metro had put up and basically what they said, stop going to be closed starting June 11 and there was a phone number and the Metro URL on there and there was a sign of a bus with like crossed out bus sign and so that didn't seem like a not very helpful yeah it's not very informative and it also kind of like i mean you know there's been a lot of attention on the network redesign project where a lot of people are like yeah already have negative feelings to it and so if you see that crossed crossed out bus then maybe if you see that at the stop near to your place then your first reaction would be like oh well i guess the bus no longer stops here and that's the end of it and i don't think that's a good thing Tell us about your plan. What's what do you have? What, what have you done here? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if it's that much of a plan. But I mean, <laughs> when my friend pointed this out, I was like, okay, there must be a better way. Like he posted a picture of, I think, a sign in Portland where, when they introduced no new routes, the sign had a map of the bus stops, like where the bus stop that is closed is, and some nearby ones, and some ways to get additional information. And so I was wondering, like, well, I mean. Could we do something similar? I mean, as you said, there's going to be a lot of closed bus stops. So I was aware that there would be a logistical challenge. But the first step was like, okay, can we actually do something where I can create 600, 700 templates for signs that give that additional information of like, where's the next bus stop? How far is it to that? And where can I find more information? And so you've got a website up now called closedbusstopsofmadison.com. And what can people find there? Yeah, basically what I said, um, there's about 650 PDF files ordered by the bus stop number. So if you don't know, like each bus stop in Madison has like a four digit number that you can use when you call Metro, for example, to like, hey, I'm at stop. 2488, when's the next bus coming? So for each of the bus stops, it's like a sheet of PDF file that has a map on it that shows the closed stop, that shows the future open stops, that has a little table on it, like what the 10 nearest bus stops are and how far it is to get to those. And the idea is that in theory, you could print those files, maybe laminate them if you have access to a laminator or put them like into a sheet protector sheet. And if you live near to one of those bus stops that's going to be closed, you could in theory put that sign up there. And have people taken you up on this so far? Well, I mean, I put it out there, so I don't really know what's happening. Um, I have some indication that some people have heard about it and may have done something with it. I mean, the other thing that I did as part of this is I reached out to Metro asking, I figured people would have pointed out to them that their current signs are not that great. And so I offered like, hey, you know, if your problem is that you don't have the capabilities to make those maps, then I can help with that. I mean, I can't go out and put up 700 signs, but maybe you have the capability. And I mean, Metro, Metro was appreciative, but they pointed out that they also don't really have the capability to put out these individualized signs, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, imagine having a stack of 600 sheets and like making sure they go up at the exact right 
bus stop and yeah nothing is worse than no sign or the only one thing that's worse than no sign is a sign that's wrong right. yeah right right right, right. so i kind of get that they didn't want to do that what they did offer though and what, what i just yesterday saw that they put up new signs that are a little more friendly a little bit more informative they are not individualized to each stop but yeah those signs are out in the wild now how long did it take you to put all this together Oh, I don't know. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that I do in the morning when I wake up and have my coffee <laughs> and like for the whatever first two hours before I go to work or on the weekends. So I don't know. It was like a lot of trial and error, like so, working so stuff you like out. wake up in the morning and knock off what four or five <laughs> signs while you're drinking no, your coffee? No, no, no. I mean, that's the thing. As I said, it's so many that you can't make them on a sign by sign basis. So, you know, I work with data at work and so i used programming to basically automate the process like you know start with one sign what should it look like and then think about how can we automate it and then you hit the button and i don't know three hours later you have 600 signs so you said madison metro was appreciative but said yeah we're not we're not we're not doing that so what are you asking people to do you are you asking people to go find them and and do this themselves and and how will people are you expecting people might interact with any Madison Metro employees that they run into? Well, I'm not sure how likely it is that you're going to run into Metro employee. I mean, I think the point of this project was more to show that there's a better way to do this, whether people are actually going to put up signs or not. I'm not sure. I mean, I told people like if you do this be nice out there, make sure you don't litter. I mean, a bus stop sign sits out there in the elements the colors may fade if you don't put it into a sheet of plastic it may just fall down and not be useful so i don't know what the uptake is going to be and like yeah take a look at it see if it makes sense to you and see if it if you think it would be useful for other people so the closed bus stops of madison um, sign project is this your first foray into sort of diy guerrilla uh, civil engineering <laughs> <laughs> well, i don't think we can call it civil engineering it's maybe data engineering yeah, i don't know <laughs> no i mean i have done similar kinds of projects i mean in the context of the redesign for example i took a set of random locations around the city and ran that through a trip time analyzer thing just to get a sense of like okay before the network after the network how much faster is the bus going to be how much more do you have to walk that kind of stuff or i do a lot of stuff related to biking so my other passion is bike advocacy and so analyzing data on how many people bike commute how that has changed over the years and also transit ridership numbers. So, I mean, working with publicly available data with the goal of informing people, with the goal of advocacy, that's something that I've been doing for quite some time. All right. We've been speaking with Harold Kleems, a transit advocate. You can find his project, Closed Bus Stops of Madison.com, on the web and uh, find your stop and go ahead and post it up at the stop and try and provide a little bit more information than Metro is capable of providing at this time. So thanks so much, Harold, for joining us on the 8 o'clock bus. Thank you. That was 8 o'clock bus host Brian Standing talking with Harold Cleans, creator of the Metro Bus Stop Sign Closure Project. 
That was just a portion of their full conversation, which can be found in full online at WRTFM.org. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bold, Jackie Sandberg, and Brian Standing with the 8 o'clock buzz. Dylan Brogan and Lauren Hicks engineered this show. Nate Buggy Out produces newscast. And Shelly Pittman is a news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast and subscribe wherever you follow the latest podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish Language News with Enrico Patio. Good night. <laughs>